The content of this program is sponsored by Make It Work Nevada. The content of this program does not reflect the views or opinions of 91.5 Jazz and More or the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. I'm screaming. I'm pregnant. I'm being threatened to be tased. I'm screaming at the top of my lungs. At that point, they drag me out and uh, they put me in solitary. And it's, it's dirty solitary. There's hair, fingernails, like feces on the toilet. I have no blanket, nothing. Like, I would just lay in bed and I would just, like, think to myself, I'm like, did I do something? Like, am I really in hell? That's Tammy Leitcher, who got pregnant in 2014, went to a doctor, and then got put in jail. Her crime? Self-medicating to treat symptoms of her untreated thyroid disease. Black women and Black pregnant people's bodies have historically and continue to be under surveillance and monitored and controlled. I wrote a report called Women's Watch that predicted that there would be overlap between the white supremacist movement and the anti-abortion movement. Anti-abortionists were the eugenicists. They wanted control of birth, but they also wanted WASP women to not have abortions. It stopped short of where Mengele and the other Nazi architects took it. But I don't see it as categorically different. I think it's just a different level of extreme. You assume that when you go for help through an agency or to the doctor, that that's what you're going to get. You don't assume that shortly thereafter, you're going to be incarcerated. This is American Dreams, Reproductive Justice. I'm your host, Erica Washington. My name is Joe Ardinger, and I'm a documentary filmmaker, and I made the film called Personhood, Policing Pregnant Women in America. Tammy had an untreated thyroid disease because she was uninsured. She had lost her job lost her health insurance. And so she went off her thyroid meds. And this wasn't just a a small thyroid problem. Her thyroid had actually been removed. And so without that medication, it can make you severely ill. It can actually change your brain function, make you hear things and all of that. There's a lot of impacts. And so she applied for insurance. And because Wisconsin hadn't taken the Medicaid expansion, Insurance was unavailable to her. Insurance wasn't available to her. I just want to emphasize this. What happened to Tammy was the direct result of dehumanizing public policy. She was really on the brink and felt suicidal. So she started self-medicating. She was just using here and there to get herself up out of bed, be able to go to the grocery store and have the semblance of a normal life. And because of her thyroid issue, she also didn't think she could get pregnant. In fact, had been told that in the past. And so when she started to suspect that she could be pregnant, it was really a shock to her. And everything changed for her in that moment. It was like this galvanizing moment for her where at this point, I really need to go get medical care. And so what did she do? She turned to the very agencies that are supposed to help you with this. 
And that's another one of those assumptions that are really challenged in hearing Tammy's story. You assume that when you go for help through an agency or to the doctor, that that's what you're going to get. You don't assume that shortly thereafter, you're going to be incarcerated, especially because Tammy hadn't committed a crime here. She went for help and was sent to the emergency room and then was very, very honest about her health background. Her focus was solely on making sure that her pregnancy would proceed in a healthy way. And her entire punishment came from that honesty. Tammy was caught up in a movement that has quietly embedded itself in the legal framework of red states in the last decade. The idea that fetuses are full human beings and that by extension, their mothers are not. It's called personhood. It allows the state to prosecute pregnant people for anything the state says is bad, really. There is no way to add fertilized eggs, embryos, and fetuses to the Constitution without subtracting pregnant women. And never before in the history of the United States has there been a movement to remove a group of people from the community of constitutional persons. And that's what we're talking about. That's Lynn Paltrow talking to Joe Ardinger in the film, Personhood. In 2001, Paltrow won a Supreme Court case against Charleston, South Carolina, because public hospitals were drug testing Black women and they were reporting them to the police. My name is Parvisha Cavital, and I'm a research and program associate at the National Advocates for Pregnant Women. In the case of Ferguson v. the city of Charleston, which our executive director, Lynn Paltrow, argued in front of this U.S. Supreme Court, they basically found that hospitals in South Carolina were teaming up with law enforcement to test women, mostly Black women, without consent for drug use and then sending them off, pregnant Black women, sending them off to jail, essentially. And then the Supreme Court found that to be a Fourth Amendment violation, which protects people from unwarranted searches and seizures. Despite that Supreme Court victory, criminalizing pregnant women has gotten more pervasive. At NAPW, we have been documenting all the arrests and forced medical interventions on pregnant people from Roe till 2020. In our original study from 1973, Roe to 2005, there are over 400 such cases or arrests. From 2006 to 2020, we've seen over 1,300 arrests. Half the time, triple the number of arrests. Journalist Nina Martin, who you heard in the last episode, started writing about personhood laws after she had encountered Paltrow at a conference. She couldn't believe what she heard. I started out in Alabama by trying to understand a really crazy thing <laughs> that um, that Lynn and the, the lawyers were telling me, which was that these women had been prosecuted not under a law that had been passed by the state legislature that was clearly about this. It was not that the state legislature had passed a law criminalizing drug use in pregnancy. What the state legislature had done was passed a law a number of years ago criminalizing meth labs. And the idea was that it was kind of at the beginning of, of the meth era and um, and they were concerned about labs that were like 
kitchen labs, like things that, you know, there's little kids in the dining room trying to play with their toys or do their homework. And somebody's a few steps away cooking meth. Whether that ever happened, I have no idea. But that's kind of the stereotype of what they were working on. And so they passed this law called the Chemical Endangerment Law that basically made it a crime to expose children to environments in which drugs were manufactured or used. And that was always known as the meth lab law. But pretty quickly, like within a few months of that law passing, prosecutors started to use it to prosecute women for using drugs in pregnancy. They argued that a place where drugs are distributed or produced was a womb and that a child was a fetus and that therefore a woman who used drugs during pregnancy was violating this meth lab chemical endangerment law and the penalties were astronomical for each exposure. So this is just in utero without any harm coming to the fetus. It was up to 10 years in prison. If some harm did come to the to the baby, it was 20 years in prison per count. And if the baby died, it was up to life. My name is Amy Yerkinen, and I am a senior reporter at AL.com. Amy Yerkinen worked with Nina Martin on a few stories about pregnant women who were criminalized under Alabama's meth lab law. She wrote about one woman, Brooke Shoemaker, who had a stillbirth and thought this law was so crazy, she fought it. In the case of Brooke Shoemaker, who's currently serving 18 years in prison after suffering a stillbirth, the medical examiner who looked at the, the baby really couldn't determine that her meth use had caused the stillbirth and actually wrote in the report that it was undetermined, like the cause of death was undetermined. But that didn't change the outcome of her trial, even though he testified on the stand that he really couldn't say one way or the other whether methamphetamine had contributed to the stillbirth. And, and you know, I think it's complicated because the issue, you know, in her case may have been the fact that she went to trial, which I think was a risk that she felt like she could take since they had so little evidence that conclusively said that the methamphetamine had caused the stillbirth. But the problem there is that drug use, in particular something like methamphetamine use, is so stigmatized during pregnancy that even with the paltry evidence they had, a jury in a place like Alabama, a very conservative place, there's still a high likelihood that they might convict, you know, despite sort of this limited evidence. It's really a tough thing, but I think I've talked to a fair number of medical examiners and I've, I've looked at these autopsies and I really can't, I don't see many that conclusively say that drug use causes stillbirth. There's very little evidence to show that that happens. Obviously women use meth and don't have stillbirths. And there are other substances that are linked to stillbirth risk, notably like cigarette smoking that you don't see prosecuted. But I do think this stigma around drug use during pregnancy, yeah, that can certainly be a high hurdle for someone to clear when they're trying to sort of fight this in court. That stigma is strong even among people who just might be in positions to help. 
Nina ran into the same issues in just telling people what she was working on. Even from my reporter friends at ProPublica, they were like, well, is this really a thing? Like, did you just happen to find, there were three main characters in our story. Did you just kind of happen to find the three people <laughs> in the whole state who that, you know, this happened to? It, it's mind boggling. It's like, this can't be happening everywhere. This isn't going to be the future. This is like Alabama. It was really hard to explain to people, this comes back to the reproductive justice idea, that women who use some sort of illicit substance or drugs during pregnancy are not evil. And that the reasons that they find themselves in their circumstances and their babies and their families find themselves in those circumstances are extremely complicated and very often have little to do with choices that women make themselves, you know, there's this automatic demonization of women in those circumstances, right? Like the bad mother is the woman who uses drugs during pregnancy. Amy wrote one piece about a woman who smoked weed on the day she found out she was pregnant. Alabama's law required she go to a residential rehab, but she didn't have a drug abuse problem. She had just smoked some weed. The rehab facility wouldn't take her because she didn't have a substance abuse problem. She spent weeks in jail dealing with untreated symptoms of a high-risk pregnancy. The charge and, and the way the law is used, I mean, it's very much rooted in the personhood movement and the anti-abortion politics. But at the same time, a lot of these women who get caught up in these prosecutions personally are also very opposed to abortion. You know, I don't know how they feel about it on sort of a policy level, but I think one of the things that's interesting to me is that they are often carrying pregnancies to term despite the fact that they know they could get arrested for it. And I've asked about that and most of them will say, well, I, I would never consider having an abortion. And they aren't talking about, you know, anyone else's right to an abortion, but just on a personal level, these are wanted babies. They didn't want to have abortions and framing it as a abortion issue here, it may not get you that far in the conversation, but I do think that there are ways to talk about it that may sort of resonate. You know, for me, I see it a lot as like an access to healthcare issue, an access to drug treatment issue. And I think that that is something that, however people feel about abortion, also almost everyone here knows someone who has had problems with substance use disorder. So that's something people can really relate to. Tennessee also had a fetal personhood law, though it didn't define a woman's uterus as a meth lab like in Alabama. But Tennessee has one of the best healthcare systems in the country. And doctors made such a fuss, the law expired after two years in 2016, which gave researchers a perfect controlled experiment. The researchers who looked at that really found that when the law came into effect, Prenatal care just fell off a cliff. Women stopped going to the doctor. You had all these reports of women avoiding hospitals, giving birth at home or, you know, on the side of the highway in one case. And hospitals said that the number of babies born exposed to drugs skyrocketed. So the effect of this law was completely the opposite of, of everything that it was written to do. Pregnancy is a very interesting time. For many people, it is the very first time that they actually formally go and enter formal medical institutions and get help. 
So in addition to getting prenatal care, it's also an excellent screening time for other health issues. And so laws that scare people because they can lead to criminal penalties, arrests, detentions, scare people from going to the hospital. And so they're not only not getting prenatal care, but there are a slew of other things that they might not realize as well. Anecdotally, as I've talked to women, especially the women who have lost pregnancies in Alabama, they have talked to me about the fear of going to the doctor, about not getting care even when they were worried that something might be going wrong because this law is in place and because they know they can get arrested. If this is a law that's intended to protect babies and it's not doing that, then I think you know, that can be a starting point to sort of talk to some of these people who do have that punishment mindset. Because, you know, what's more important? Is it more important to punish women for doing something you think is bad? Or is it more important to get that woman to have the healthiest pregnancy that she can? And, and those, those two goals are in conflict. For Tammy, the Wisconsin woman who was the subject of the personhood movie, getting the healthiest pregnancy was her only goal. She went to the doctor to get thyroid meds and to make sure her thyroid condition wouldn't complicate the pregnancy. But she was not allowed to leave that medical facility. Not before a legal panel was set up. I didn't know what was going on and the first thing I said was, I, I don't want to talk unless I have a lawyer. The 14-week-old fetus had a lawyer at this hearing who was taking a position adverse to Tammy and was represented by counsel where Tammy, who had asked for a lawyer, did not have one and was denied one. I just um, followed Tammy down the hallway to her room. She doesn't want to be afraid of this anymore, okay? Is that considered waiving her appearance? And the judge just decided to go on without her. And a doctor whom she had confided in and given her private medical information got on the phone and basically divulged everything in Tammy's private medical record. Before I get started, I just want to verify that I don't have her authorization to speak on her behalf. So I would be breaching confidentiality. Is that is that correct? Um, that is not an issue in this type of proceeding. The law does not require any kind of scientific proof whatsoever of any of the allegations against the pregnant woman. It's entirely up to um, ultimately the discretion of the judge. Now, the one thing we didn't have is uh, any testimony as to exactly how much of any of those drugs she was using. However, the question is, is whether they exist to a severe degree. I told them whatever that court proceeding was, is that I wanted an attorney. I wanted, and then it's like they, they didn't care. They went and made the decision without me. She could have had a lawyer if she could have afforded one, but she couldn't afford one. So she had to face this hearing entirely on her own. When I listen to that clip or anytime I am in an audience hearing the reactions to that clip from the audience members, my heart starts pounding because it's one of the more shocking bits because it really challenges all our assumptions. It challenges that we have a right to a lawyer if, if our freedom is going to be up for grabs. It challenges our notion that we have medical privacy. And these are the things where you can hear people, you know, audible gasps because nobody can believe 
what happens. And Tammy couldn't believe what was happening. Let's play part of that court hearing again. Before I get started, I just want to verify that I don't have her authorization to speak on her behalf. So I would be breaching confidentiality. Is that, is that correct? I didn't find out until much later that that physician had no idea how this information was going to be used against Tammy. Purvisha Cavacher from the National Advocates for Pregnant Women confirmed that many medical professionals who report women and pregnant people who have taken drugs really aren't aware of what's going to happen to them. Aside from the Supreme Court case that showed healthcare workers coordinating with police, most of the time the systems don't talk to each other. Healthcare professionals think they are required to report. Purvisha says that's just not true. CAPTA is called Abuse Prevention and Treatment Act, and CARA is the Comprehensive Addiction and Recovery Act. And providers may wrongly assume that these acts require the reporting of all substance exposed newborns to child welfare agencies because CAPTA CARA requires states, in order for them to receive the federal child abuse prevention funds, the state requires them to develop policies for notification to child welfare agencies. However, that notification requirement is not on an individual level, but rather it's often at a de-identified aggregate data level. And so like understanding that is huge. Pervisha noted that more than 1,000 people have been investigated in Wisconsin in the last five years under that law that Tammy was investigated for. 460 of them, like Tammy, were jailed or made to go to rehab. In addition to all these things that happened to her, she received a notice from the state telling her that they had found her to have committed child maltreatment of her 14-week-old fetus. And they said, you know, this is part of what leads us to think that you are a child maltreater is because what you did before you even conceived the baby. And it's quite an amazing document. She never even had a minute of parenting, and she's already been deemed a child abuser. So that finding, if it stands, will continue to follow her um, as a parent. That finding did not stand. Tammy fought her case and ultimately won, but it didn't set a precedent. Tammy's case actually was resolved. So Tammy wasn't the first person to challenge this law. She was just the first person who was successful in getting her case taken up by the federal court. The law was actually overturned on the basis of it being unconstitutionally vague, which is a a victory, but it was very short-lived victory because that attorney general at the time in Wisconsin was really, really determined to keep applying this law and they appealed it. And then in the end, there was a panel of three judges that vacated the decision. And so the law is still being applied in Wisconsin. It's hard for us to know the outcomes of all of that because this is all done in the secrecy of the juvenile court system. And and that's why Tammy had to get her records unsealed because everything that's done in the juvenile court system is secret. And it's meant to protect people. But you can see what Wisconsin is doing is basically applying the state's child maltreatment laws onto the situation of pregnancy. And it really doesn't uh, compute. And so right now the law is still being uh, used 
in Wisconsin. By the time I got to the hospital and I gave birth to him, it was five hours. I was just so happy because he came out and he was perfect and he wasn't all messed up like they all told me he was going to be. I'm sorry. <laughs> The voices you've heard on today's program are Tammy Lacher from the Personhood Film, Film Director Joe Ardinger, NAPW Executive Director Lynn Paltrow, NAPW Researcher Pervisha Caviter, Journalist Nina Martin, Journalist Amy Yurkinen, Wisconsin Attorney Freya Bowen. We also want to pay homage to the 12 women who were in the room in 1994. Dr. Tony Bond, Reverend Alma Crawford, the late Evelyn S. Field, Terry James, Bissola Marignan, Cassandra McConnell, Cynthia Newble, Loretta Ross, Elizabeth Terry, Representative Abel Mabel Thomas, Wynette P. Willis, and Kim Youngblood. Thank you for listening to American Dreams, Reproductive Justice. Created, hosted, and executive produced by Erica Washington. That's me. Also executive produced by Carrie Kaufman with Overthinking Media, LLC. Music by Will Black for Black Gypsy Music with incidental music by The Flowbots. Artwork by Brent Holmes. This podcast is empowered by the donations to Make It Work Nevada.